And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Marcus Lemonis is my guest today. He's the host of The Prophet on CNBC. It's a show that I love. Uh, I find Marcus, who is at the center of the show and who, um, you know, finds businesses that are broken and gets in there and, and fixes them. Not like an investor who's just putting money in, but he actually rolls up his sleeves, helps redesign the focus of the business. Um, and applies this rigorous intellect, but also understanding of people to solving these problems. I don't watch many reality shows. I watch this one because I find the way that Marcus thinks and feels through these challenging issues to be uh, super compelling. And one of the great things about having this podcast is I can get somebody like this to sit with me and tell me, how it is that they do the thing that they do and why they do it. And uh, it's a rare opportunity, and I'm so glad that I get to do it and that you get to listen in and meet someone like Marcus the exact same way and at the exact same time that I do. So he'll be here soon. I also just want to say uh, another thing I love about this is hearing from you. Uh, I love the emails I get at the moment, bk at gmail.com. Keep them coming. Thanks for rating the show on iTunes uh, and for the nice comments there. And thanks for tweeting at me. I love every part of the conversation that we're all engaged in. So Marcus Lamonis will be here soon, and uh, we'll keep this conversation going. Thanks. This one? But yeah. You're off. On. Okay. I was looking through a magazine called Modern Luxury, and they had these Chanel headphones for sale for six thousand dollars well, you know it's really interesting um, obscene like that. well you know what's really interesting here you can put them on if you want and see if you can hear is um i had seth godin in here you know seth who's uh this he's given ted talks that have like oh yeah 12 yeah, yeah. million yeah, yeah. views he wrote 13 number one bestsellers yeah 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 and we did this podcast last week and he really broke down and he spent a lot of time studying it why people buy those headphones why people buy beats um instead of sennheiser's and then even going further, well, okay, let's say you're the kind of person who takes pride in not buying Beats, but you still think, oh, I'm going to buy Sennheiser because they sound better. He's like, it's layers and layers of being reactive to a whole bunch of stuff, right? It, and it's very hard to actually dig deep enough to know whatever your authentic self would really want. It's packaging. It's, it's promotion. It's wanting to feel like you're part of something. That's what it all boils down to, right? Yeah. The, I, to me, it's like a watch. It all tells the same time. I'm sure there's some difference between your headphones and mine, but I can still hear. Yeah, you can hear fine. For like real audiophiles, maybe they notice the difference, but yeah. and most of the things they're listening to, they don't. Um, so now, if you, we'll get into this. If And Marcus Lamonis is here, and we're going to kind of start now. But um, if, if you were to look at a business like that, a headphones business, let's say, mm -hmm. um, would, would you, because you don't really... Um, understand why you'd use one versus another would it be hard for you to figure out whether to get involved or not i mean i would figure it out eventually but you know this is a very embarrassing thing to say i don't invest in technology i'm scared of it well tech's not big don't worry about it it's, it's not going it's, anywhere it's it's uh it, it moves too fast it become things become obsolete too fast and the problem is is i don't if i don't feel like i have a command of it it just i don't it's not, it's not in my wheelhouse you mean if you don't feel that you can make um, a, a series of objective judgments? Or changes. So judgments are one thing, right? But I want to affect change. I wouldn't know where to start. In any tech venture. 
I don't think I would know where to start. It's embarrassing to say. I just, I you know, I can go into I can go into fashion. I can go into automobile. I can go into almost any consumer retail. I can go into food. I can go into manufacturing. I get all that. When things start to have an on and off button and there's a reboot button, it it I'm not gonna lie to you. But it, because what happens? You feel? Do you feel? Um, in some way, like intimidated by the knowledge yes. that the workers have, because yes. you don't have a better, uh, you I, don't have a, uh, you don't have any sort of way to arbit yourself. My BS meter is would be broken. That's the hard part. My BS meter right. would be broken. Normally, I could put my radar up and boom, nail it. In that case, they could be telling me this is how the thing works. I'd say okay, I wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean, you might be able to find somebody there who was able to then translate it I to you. Yes, but I would always be skeptical. You mean that they were pulling one over on you, that you weren't getting to the bottom line of what it really is? It's not even about whether they were misleading me. Did they, did they know what they were talking about? How, like when some, when I'm in a consumer retail brand, yeah, it's like episode tonight is it's women's fashion, um, and to me, fashion is fashion, right? It's it's about the way you merchandise the product, it's about the way you manufacture it, it's about the way you distribute it. It's not not complicated. Women's pants, men's pants. It's, it's I, for me, it's pretty basic. Today we had the grand opening of Crumbs. I get it. it needs to be congratulations about the right thing. on bringing that thing I back. You got so. a lot of coverage. On you, it. We got a lot of coverage. Hope I did the right thing, but it really is. A, it's a consumer brand. How do you manufacture it? How do you merchandise it? How do you retail it? How do you take care of the customer? It still kind of makes sense to me. You start to get into something uh, odd. You know, the first business I ever had, I was in the lawn care business. I was 11 years old. I started a lawn business. Yeah. I got it. You cut the grass. It needs to look nice. If it looks nice, you ask for payment. If it doesn't look nice, you're not going to get paid. Right. It was pretty basic. Well, yeah, straightforward. You understood. And did you understand early on how to separate yourself from the other lawn care um, concerns? I did. I tell you what I would do as a, as a child. I would over-service the account. I would check in all the time. I would walk the property every couple of days. I would do things even if I wasn't asked to do it. I kind of just thought if I over-service this and I'm almost like a nuisance, right? I was 11. Sure. So at that point, you just want to be a nuisance, right? Can I cut your grass today? No. I come back again and again. And finally, they give. Well, sure, because you're cute and they appreciate your the fact that you're working that hard for right. it. But, you know, obviously, your strategy has to, your objective may be the same as you get older. <laughs> right, but, I, but strategy and tactics have to shift. But I'll tell you what's funny. I used to actually had this rule. I don't know how I developed this at 11. But when I would go on my pitch for the first time or there would be an issue, I would never talk to the to the father or the man of the house. I would always talk to the mother because I figured I could just like, kind of, you know, charm my way to getting out of whatever it was. And it worked. Now, how did you learn uh, how to be charming to adults? You know, um, I know from the sort of mythology about you, and I know it's true, yeah. that, um, you know, your background set you up to, that you had some difficulty with your own peers. Yeah. And, and I do today even. With your peers? Yeah. How would you I, define peers? People my own age. I, I really relate to people that are older than me, and I do that in business. It's funny, in my own business, Camping World, you know, I'm still one of the younger people there, right? Not only when I look at my customer base, which is a little bit older, but when I look at my employee base, they're, they're older. And so at least for the next year or so, it's been for the last 12, 15 years, I've always been the kid that they worked for. 
and you just understand how to talk to that generation of people. You know, when I was a child, I, I grew up as an only child uh, and I'm a very adult family, very serious family. And so, you know, Sunday night dinners with, a, you know, at my grandfather's house, I'd have a tie on. I mean, I was a kid. Why? Serious? How? What, I, what was their I, background? Formal, formal. Uh, well, Lebanese family. We were big in the automobile business in South Florida. My grandfather was just very formal. The house was formal. Everything was formal about it. I mean, there was just, a way things were supposed to it, be yeah, done and yeah. the way you were supposed to comport yourself. You know, if you take a look, and I kind of, I'm sorry I didn't live in this time. You take a look at the 1950s, 19, I'd say the 1950s, where everybody was proper. You would go to the mall and people would be, you know, men would be dressed in suits. You'd go to church and they'd be dressed properly. This, this, this dawn of the age of casualness didn't really exist before. I think in my family, I think my grandfather just kept going. And even, you know, he passed away. He was 100 and I don't know, some odd years old. And uh, even when he was 100, he would go, you know, to the restaurant on, for lunch in a tie. And so it was just very formal. Yeah. When, when you look at that, when you look at sort of the way, uh, you know, this, people talk about it as like a democratization and that, um, uh, you know, when certain billionaires started dressing in a different way and it sent different signals. Mm -hmm. um, do you, is there something about that that you think um, we're, we're losing? Do you feel like it's a, do you miss that? Um, do I miss the, 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 um, because when you talk about it, it seems almost romantic. To yeah, you. it is romantic because it, it's, you know, I try to be dressier, uh, more often than not, but I know the world is more casual. I'm, I've always been fascinated by women and men of the 1950s. You watch an old Cary Grant, Deborah Kerr movie sure, and they're on the cruise ship and they're dressed up all the time. And it's obviously I can't transport myself back, nor do I want to dress like that every day. But I feel like. Uh, we've gotten a little too No, and casual. by the way, I mean, a Lebanese family in the 1950s would have a lot harder time being upwardly mobile than it That's does right. now. I That's mean, right. like the world, That's right. the, the, the sort of outer affect might be something you'd relate to more, but there might be certain other problems you'd run into. I wonder if, if I think a little bit about, I go into some of these businesses today and the level of kind of casualness. In fact, I just finished an episode in South Carolina. I was in barbecue, uh, and they're obviously very casual, but they're making barbecue. And so they were... They were dressed properly for yes. the play. I want I want people to live in the context. You go to these uh, you know big banks and you have people dressed well. It's Casual Tuesday. You know I want my banker to look right. I want him to be dressed professionally. I do want him to wear a tie. I do want him to wear a nice suit. Not because I want it to feel good, but I just it's it's I want him to feel like in the context of the situation I want it to be right. Well, I wonder if you think that by taking that extra care. It, it suggests to the customers, um, like, if I take extra care with how I'm going to present myself, I'm going to take extra care with how I take care Isn't of you. Isn't that true? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I do know that um, in the movie business, which is where I spend most of my time, right. um, the agents still mostly will wear jackets and with suits, even if not always ties, mostly ties, because they're fiduciaries. But, you know, the great con men all dress up also. They I mean, do. in the Sting, right? Nobody looks better than Newman and Redford in the Sting. So they dress the part. They really dress the part. But you know what's different? My grandfather used to tell me, and I, I won't keep relating back to him. My parents used to tell me, too. No, please do. Uh, as a young child, when I wasn't doing well with my peers, when I was heavy, when I was awkward, when I was doing all these things, my mother was very smart. She would tell me a lot about dressing for the part. If you want people to take you seriously at a young age and you feel like you have some skill that separates you from your peers, you're going to have to look the part. And she said early on, unfortunately, 
The only way you're going to gain credibility is to act and look older. Associate with older people. You hang out with the kids, you're going to be a kid. And so I think that's maybe where it started too. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I just, you know, when I, I think about your approach, so I watched your show. I, I discovered it last season and I'm not somebody who watches reality television. I watched every episode um, on demand. And what, what I'm fascinated by, and I think it's probably what a lot of people are, um, is you. And so I want to talk about the show, but I, I want to talk about how it is and why it is that you do the thing that you do in the way that you do it. Because it seems like you have an approach that combines um, the emotional and the intellectual and that you will lead with one or the other depending on the situation and then utilize the other one to kind of check yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you developed that approach or when you sort of consciously realized, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this this way. Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because you made me think about tonight's episode. It's, it's probably the episode out of, I've done 24 of them now. Tonight's the episode that was uh, far more emotional than it was intellectual, far more emotional than it was financial, because I saw uh, a situation, a a mother-son situation that was very fractured. And I think when I go into these businesses, um, I definitely cheer for the underdog. And so I use that emotion to kind of root for the underdog and whether that's the employee or the owner who's in bad shape. Uh, But I definitely am a villain killer. 100%. I mean, so I pride myself on being a villain killer. And I really, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I don't do it with malice, but I do it with great satisfaction that I want to be the guy that saves somebody from themselves or from somebody else. And I use as much of my resources, not always financial, by the way, as much of my resources or my influence to rescue that person from the situation and when they don't follow that or they question it, it isn't about it's my money and you, how dare you? It's I'm here to help you and you're questioning my intentions. And so it's uh, uh, a guy from Inc. Magazine. I did a, an article with Inc. Magazine this past month and the guy was with me for four or five days, the writer David Whitford. And he said to me, you know, do you do you feel like you're he, he was being serious with me. He said, do you think of yourself as like a modern day superhero? Oh, that's, yeah. And I was like, no, but that would be really awesome if somebody else did. No, I don't. But if that's how people see me, then that's a big responsibility. Well, no, I wrote down, and um, I wrote down to ask you this question, which was, um, can you turn off this superpower that you have, which is to go into situations and evaluate, which we'll get to the question, but the, I want to stay on this emotional uh, moment because I, uh, I hear you now and I hear you in the interstitial moments very rationally talking about um, that you don't sort of get an ego stake in this, which you, I think you don't. Oh, I have ego stake and of course I do. But when I look at the episode in the wine store or in the candy store or uh, with the key lime pie person um, or with the guy, the first episode from last season, the guy with the car the, place, the car mm-hmm. plays, um, it seems like once you can make a judgment that is – um, a binary one. Once you've determined something and that it's so clear to you, it seems like it does tap into some kind of sense that uh, you can't let the injustice win. I know. It gets me in trouble, though. In business? In life? Yes. To both. 
Well, that, yes yeah. to both. It gets me in trouble because sometimes I'll do a deal that I really shouldn't. I don't know why. Uh, you know, I look at Amazing Grapes, which is the wine episode. I was so infuriated by the fact that this owner abandoned these employees. So infuriated by it. And that they would come to work every day without question, without fail, and give 150% with no with no rudder, with no guidance, with no pay, with no acknowledgement. And I just felt like, it, this, is, this is ludicrous. Yeah, it got me. And you did a great job of communicating it. I mean, I think it's one of the things, that might have been the very first one that I saw, and then I went back to watch a bunch of others. And to me, that, um, he was like a pro wrestling heel. <laughs> but, uh, but you kept giving him... You, it was like you kept uh, uh, giving him chances, almost like you needed him not only to accede to you, but to to see the world the way you saw it. You almost needed his, like, approval in a weird way, even though he was neither your, like, intellectual or moral equal in any way. I mean, he was playing bad music in this, uh, in his wine store. But I believe I can change people's perspective. I have this very naive... Uh, uh, kind of thought process that I can change the way people think about things. And sometimes it works. It Sometimes it really works. And uh, I will tell you that people that um, I have friendships with or people that are on my, my, uh, my team that, that are a part of, um, part of our organization, sometimes it frustrates them because, you know, people will say to me often, hey, 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 you can't fix everything. Stop. Like, I don't need you involved in every problem that I have. I don't, but I want to help you. I, I get it, but I don't, I don't need you to help me all the time. It's like a disease for well, me. Well, which is funny because that's <laughs> advice you would give to the head of, like, if you were going to, inter, if you were going to go and intervene in a, in a situation in a company, you would say to the person, do you think this employee is capable? If they said yes, you'd say, then let her do her job. Yeah. Well, I let people do their job. Uh, and what you'll find is the people that have been with me the longest when they're really qualified, I really do leave them alone. And I'm, and it's odd. I, I'd say this with the all due respect to everybody. I almost become such fans of people. Sure. And that I sometimes get taken advantage of. How? Because I become um, so enamored with their loyalty and so enamored with their passion and so enamored with their intelligence that sometimes I become too enamored and I take my eyes off things. And while I believe everybody in the world is good, the reality of it is that everybody in the world isn't good. You mean, um, although you want to believe everybody in the world is good. I, I mean, I get you, or you saying you tell yourself an affirmation that, look, everybody has goodness in them. I, that I believe, I would, I would, to my death, I would argue that every single person has some fiber, some fabric, some layer of goodness in them and that something else either contaminated them or some bad experience from the past changed their direction. And so I, babies, in my mind, are born innately good, and then something something contaminates them mentally, emotionally, psychology, because it happened to me. So I want, it happened to you that you mean by the yeah, rough experience? Sure, I was contaminated by, by the way I was treated. By, by whom? Other kids my own age when I was small. Um, uh, uh, you know, family members who thought I wasn't good enough. I mean, I, I've spent a good chunk of my life um, working hard to prove to to people uh, that the underdog can win. Because I'm clear, I'm the underdog. I'm not, I'm not the smartest guy you'll ever meet. I'm not the best looking guy you'll ever meet. 
I'm a scrappy kind of guy. Yes, I can get dressed in a nice suit and do, I'm, I'm the greatest window dresser. But when you peel all of that away, I'm more than ordinary. I mean, I'm more than ordinary. So you think you're fueled by this sort of, um, some sort of like rage or um, still in reaction to people saying you're not good enough? A rage wouldn't be a good word. My maturity over time has taken it away from in my early 30s. It was rage in my late. 30s, so you've been able to let it go, that go. I've been able to let it go because I realize the responsibility I have for other people who now are watching and following and learning from what I do. And so the show has oddly and bizarrely enough become a better learning experience for me than the viewer. You mean in terms of like patience, managing your own state, knowing you're being watched, that stuff? Uh, no, patience, being a better listener, being a better listener, yeah. understanding that humility is really the key to, to things. Yeah, when I say that you're term. being watched, I don't mean you're being judged. I mean that others are taking lessons from you so that if yeah. you allow yourself. Whoa, what a great responsibility that is. Uh, it's a great responsibility when people tweet at you and tell you, hey, my nine-year-old daughter thinks your show's the coolest thing. Uh, my elementary school class watched this. My high school class watches the people at the senior center love you. That's a huge responsibility. I mean, it's it's daunting for me. No, it's a big responsibility. It is. And, and it's hard to walk a line where you can only be human. And then people have certain expectations that you're like a magician. You know, it's... Uh, for people who haven't seen the show, it's not really a, just a business show. At all. There's business lessons, and I work hard to fight to get as much business in there, but it's not a business show. Well, the amazing thing to me about the show is, and, it, and, and, and amazing the way that, um, that it, you know, if another person was at the center of the show, I don't think this thing would have manifested itself, which is that if you were a kid who, who was judged unfairly and who was... Um, who's sort of the, the market inefficiencies between your potential and what they saw were so great. I watched an episode like the episode of the Key Lime Company and this woman employee there. Um, and who's a rock star. Awesome. And was unrecognized, basically. Trashed, just absolutely dissed. And I just wonder if some part of you is, is, is even as you talk about it, is trying still... Um, to right these wrongs that were done to you through these other people. No doubt about it. It's, uh, it's almost like, it's almost like uh, strand by strand in my DNA, I'm repairing things for myself and doing it um, through other people. It's almost like when I, when I had my relationship with Tammy, who was the young lady that worked at Key Lime Pie, we had, you know, kids and we, there's a lot of things we didn't talk about on the show that she didn't have, uh, she didn't have health care and she couldn't have the baby. And she was working bartending West and she had to fly to Miami to have her baby. I mean, just all this craziness that you think, how, how do people have to live like this? That repairing and making things right for her was 70% for her and 30% for me. It was 30% because it made me feel like I was fixing a strand inside of me. When you, when you fly away from that to just use the superhero metaphor, mm -hmm. And you've done this thing for this person. I guess a couple of things. One, how do you how do you check back in? Do you are you, do you allow yourself to check back in? How do you um, tell yourself, okay, um, I can do this much. I can't do that much. How how do you kind of like um, keep the ministry going? So I 
I have a, a positive and a negative that's the same thing, which is I make myself very accessible to people. You can communicate with me very easily, and she does, and she sends me pictures of her kids, and she tells me when things are right. She never communicates about business. Uh, but it, but I'll be honest with you, it's, it becomes not just with her, but people in general. As, as you get in and affect more people, it becomes more daunting, more unrealistic to maintain all those relationships. Yeah, but, but how do you balance that with what you must feel, which is some obligation because they've, you've come in, um, you've come in from above almost as a deus ex machina, right? You've come in in a way that w they couldn't have expected in their lives and you've, You've interceded, you've intervened, and you kind of bumped them all the way ahead. You've given them this recognition they craved secretly. You've valued them and propped them up. Um, but as you know, systems revert to stasis. And not only their internal stasis, but the, the, the organism that they're in, the business. So, so how, do you, how do you, and you've done it in such a public way, so what do you tell yourself about it? I tell myself sometimes when I lay awake at night and I think about it that, that it's, a, um, it's a real problem for me uh, because I have a responsibility to not um, disappoint. And so what you don't want to do is take somebody who's not in good place, take them to a good place, and then abandon them and put them at a place that was even worse than where you started disappointment, abandonment. Yes. It's like, wait a minute, you came into my life, you did these things for me, and now you're gone. And I, I'm not going to lie. There's, there's times that I lay awake and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do all this. And what happens is, is that I feel like this is maybe the sacrifice that we'll talk about in a little bit, is that I feel like the one thing that this show has done to me, not for me, is that it's taken a little bit of me away. Like I've lost a little bit of myself and I've had to exchange it right. to you. Right. And it's Because hard. you're giving and you're giving in that way. And, and you're so, kind of giving the best of, almost the best of yourself and fortifying yourself. Yeah, but I really, I literally feel like I'm, I'm sometimes out of control in the sense that I don't have myself anymore. You know, I just don't in, have... In what way? Um, it's... Uh, you know, this all happened. The show's been on for, you know, a little under two years. It it started out of nowhere. It moved very fast. It's gotten to be very... How did it come to happen? It came to happen. Uh, I, I had a... I did Secret Millionaire about, I don't know, five, four or five years ago. And and uh, the production company approached me and said, hey, we know you do these, buy these small businesses. CNBC is looking to get into primetime. Would you be interested in going to talk to them? So I flew to New York. I met with Mark Hoffman, who's the president of CNBC, and, and uh, Jim Ackerman, who runs reality programming, and had a very honest conversation and said, look, I, you know, this is who I am. I don't know how this whole production thing works. I do deals. This is exactly what I do. Um, and Mark Hoffman, uh, and I don't know if I've reminded him of this, said to me, you understand that, that, that if this goes well, your life will never be the same. Right. And I said at that time, you know, I was like, oh, what does that mean? You know, I said, oh, that sounds, it'll be fun. I'll have a good time. And he said to me, you have to understand if you go in with both feet, he said, as charismatic as you are and as personable as you are and as accessible as you are, it's, it's, it's going to change things for you. You have to understand what that means. But some part of you being as bright as you are, some part of you must have, Made some part of you must well, and some part it. of you must have needed, sure. must have needed Luck. this kind of affirmation yes. and this exchange, this emotional exchange. Anybody that 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 does television, 
or they're singers or they're athletes or they're wired in a public forum has some portion of them that has a void inside of them that's looking for some affirmation. And for me, uh, there was obviously, and there probably always will be, some level of me that when I didn't get that recognition as a child, when I didn't get that affirmation as a child, and when I battled against it, that probably said, I think I can fill this really empty void this way. Yeah, oh, but you boy, know, you know, it's a really that I thought. But, but you know, you have to know that um, <laughs> that it's a very perilous road to look for and count on the endorphin hit that uh, the the endorphin hit, and it's not only just endorphins, like the whole sort of somatic change that mm -hmm. happens uh, to you through these exchanges. Um, it's very dangerous to look outside oneself at times for that sense of validity because of, um, be, well, it's, it's dangerous because anytime you're looking for this external thing, um, to, but aren't to we keep all really looking for that? I mean, don't, don't, doesn't everybody really look for that? Well, yeah, but the, the question is, how do you find, well, no, does everybody look for it? Does everybody, from, the, uh, from, from, no, isn't the pursuit to become comfortable in your own skin uh, ultimately, uh, to not, to, to, um, be happy to give, uh, and do these things. Uh -huh. But to just not, in a way, need to fill that. Void. Well, I don't feel like or I'm to fill it other way. I, I don't feel like I'm needing to fill it anymore. And so, interestingly enough, I'm glad that you brought that up. I feel like after I made the first couple of shows, and after the first couple of shows aired, I think the mere fact that we were able to successfully do it, I was almost like I was able to check the box. Sure. And I then what that. happened was people became addicted to what we were serving them. They became needy of like, I want to learn more. I want to experience more. I want to see my business. I want to see, it almost became like I felt obligated. Somebody asked me earlier today, how much longer do you think you'll make the show? You know, it's only been 24 episodes. It's not that long. Uh, and it takes, it's the most exhausting thing that I've ever done. Yeah, sure. Of course. It's the hardest show to make. It's, it's, it's nine days of filming that turns into 44 minutes, as you know. Um, I, and none of it's uh, scripted. Nothing, you don't repeat yourself. They don't I, repeat themselves. You know, there are moments where we have to do, like, I'll do a business uh, explanation to somebody. Sure. And I'll go too fast. And the producer will say to me, we have no idea what you just said. Sure. Yeah. And so can you speak in English? Um, so there are moments. But the raw emotion of it all, the anger of it all, the surprise of it all, the discovery of it all is all raw. Which is why the show has kind of a... Um, kind of a raw and wonky feel to it you know you do feel it's I mean, clumsy in a good yeah in a good way um i, I agree with that but you were saying you were, someone asked you how long are you going to keep doing yeah it? and so uh i really now feel as i i met some some young kids at crumbs today and uh high school kids that came and college kids that came who tell me that it's in their class and they're learning so much and they they were down and out and now they're inspired it's it's very hard when somebody says to you, no matter how tired you are, you know, your, your show, I watched the show, it changed my life. I was thinking about this. Can we talk about that? I have this idea. My students are talking about it. My classmates are talking about it. Uh, can you explain it? Can you visit my school? Can you teach me? Can you teach me? Can you teach me? And I used to do interviews all the time about what, what I'd like to do when I grow up, and that was to be the president of a university. Right. 
well, how is this really? I'm You're doing the, it. You're minute. Well, a, I'm like a, I'm like a, like like a professor. Well, you know that's that line from the movie Quiz Show. Um, yep. when, he, when uh, Dave Garraway, who's the morning host, says to Ray Fiennes' character, you know, um, this is the biggest classroom in the world. It's everybody's paying attention. So, that's certainly true. I mean, that's certainly true. Though, you know, the temptations are slightly different, and the ways in which. I, you know, which obviously you're managing well, you're a grown-up. But you Why know, are they different? What's different about them? Well, the scale is different and the rewards are different. The rewards on top of just the mere reward of teaching, right? You, the rewards you get, fame. Um, you, that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. I agree with that. And yeah. so, the, you know, I, I'm, a best, I'm a big risk-reward uh, analyst. Yeah. Uh, and somebody has asked me several times, do you believe this has been good for you? I mean, it depends on what the measurement stick is. Do I think it's been good for my personal life? It's been terrible for my personal life. Do I think it's been good for my, my physical body? I think it's been terrible for my body. Do I think it's been good for my checking account? Ah, the jury's out. We don't know yet. I've spent in through 24 episodes, $11 million. Um, I've, I haven't really had any big losers yet. So they're, right. they're, I'm, I'm feeling good about Long that. Long term in our culture, though, the kind of the kind of fame you're getting has ancillary financial benefits. Like what? Know. Tons. First of all, speaking, obviously, speaking. Don't, don't care. May, yeah, but it is something that can have huge financial benefit if you wanted to. Could. You can get six figures of speech. And that's you. So there are other ways. There are many ancillary there benefits. There are ways to monetize it. Yes. But, but I think then I would become a sellout. Right. So that's the balancing act for yourself. Because, yeah, I, I mean, when you say how, what are the benefits? I mean, you know, a lot of people I'll believe that um, I don't know that this is true, but a lot of people think that there were years where Donald Trump was making the lion's share of his just income by being on that television show. Right. Right. But I guess that's a trade you're not interested in making. I, no, that trade's not available. Let's start with that. That trade's not available today. But that's not a trade that I'm interested in making because I think it would take away from the authenticity. I think it would take away... Uh, from um, the purity of it. And I don't want to become one of those guys that sells out. Listen, we have heavy debates uh, internally about, you know, when we first started the show, we couldn't get people to advertise on the show at the rate that we would like them to. It was new. Today, we're having a significant success. The, the Chryslers of the world, the AT&Ts of the world, the Chases of the world, everybody wants a piece. And I've been very clear, and I, I, this is one of the reasons that I love CNBC. They have been very honest with me to say we are not going to turn this show into a circus act. It is not going to turn into an infomercial. If you believe in something, you talk about it. If you don't believe in something, don't talk about well, it. Well, yeah, because you are absolutely um, – one of the things that's clear watching the show is that you are reacting authentically to – these business situations mm -hmm. and to whether a product is worthy or not. And absolutely, if you start selling that out and those lines become blurred, that'd be a big problem. I can see there's over. no chance of that it's happening. You know, Tony Robbins, who I think is a brilliant guy uh, and someone I've gotten to spend a lot, good amount of time with in my life. Um, you know, one of the things he talks about is that success is, um, uh, success is a science, but fulfillment is an art form, personal fulfillment. And so when you're talking about this, this sacrifice, it's clear that that success is attainable. You've been incredibly successful. But, you know, when you even just casually say it's been good for my personal life, you know, it's funny in our society, I guess we just write that off as a small thing, but that's your personhood and who you are. And do you, you know, if 
what I was if, if if Marcus Limonis was looking at your life and the choices you're making, how do you think he'd evaluate it? I think he would question a lot of it. I think he would wonder what the purpose of all of it is. I think he would um, uh, ask me what my priorities were in life. Um, and I think if Marcus was answering Marcus, he would probably say to some degree, I'm not sure. I'm still finding out. I'm still learning and I'm still developing and I'm still growing. But I'm, I'm more fulfilled today as a human being than I was five years ago. That's great. Um, do, do I still feel like there's voids in my life? Yeah. Uh, do I feel like a TV show is going to fill them? No, I don't. Right. I don't. I mean, are you, one of the hallmarks of the show is that, um, there's this great line in the movie Silverado, which is that, um, Kevin Klein's character has discovered he's, uh, in the, in the sand, lying in the sand in the desert. He's been ripped off and, and someone's had this happen. And he said, guys asked me to ride with them. And my feeling is um, you got to choose trust everybody or trust nobody. It doesn't make a difference. Right. And so your show starts with the premise, I'm going to trust you. Have to. Um, are you able to be trusting in the other parts of your life in that same way? Or are the costs of it too great? Like in, in business, it's just losses. Um, well, business for me is not about money. I wish it was more about money, but it's not about money. It's about relationships. And they can they can... In, intrinsically lead to making money if they're handled properly. And so that's kind of how, if you, if you have a business and you take care of it and you do the right things, it will take care of you. So I just leave it at that. Um, it's not just about losses for me, but I am not able in my personal life, I'm not able to trust to the same degree as I am in my business life. And I'm criticized for it by by people that are in my inner circle. You trusted that bozo, and you're questioning me. So, I mean, um, how are you trying to, like, again, doing Marcus to Marcus? Like, how have you thought about, because what you would say to somebody who said that was, well, if you know that, how come you're not figuring out how to fix it? Is that a question for me? Yeah. Um, I guess I'd have to want to first. I guess I have to want to fix it. Right, because then I be have like, to deal with a whole bunch of other right. issues. Then I have to like, you know, then I have to psychoanalyze myself, but I don't have time for it. Yeah, but you wonder though, as you get, uh, because as you're somebody who's going in there and and able to give so much to fix other people, um, and and I, I I hear what you said that, oh, it's not the best way towards fulfillment, but so many of us who chase and who have who have at times in our lives put our careers really front and center. You know, because you are so open on the show and we get these glimpses of who you are. And when tonight we, you're going to get a very different well, glimpse of Well, tonight, me. I will Have say... Have you seen the screener? No, I haven't seen tonight's episode. And this show, I think, is going to air for the second episode, this mm-hmm. podcast, but um, so people can on-demand it yeah. and watch the first episode Courage of the season. Yeah. But watching you, you know, what one would expect is that what one would think is, gosh, this guy would be a great dad. You know, and this guy would be great at building, perpetu- you know, being able to perpetuate the way that he looks at the world and would be such a good teacher. And I guess what I'm saying is you're in this show, you're able to come in and be magical for these people for a short period of time. And I know you continue your involvement, but essentially you're in there, you're fixing stuff and you're kind of like moving down the road onto the next thing. Yeah. And so I wonder, what, you know, as you look at it, how long you're going to do it for whether it becomes important to you to to keep personally 
evolving. Mm-hmm. You know, I do it outside of the show as well. And so what you see on the show is a sampling of what I do in my own life. I, I, you know, crumbs was a very big deal for me. It happened outside the show. There are other businesses that I've made investments in that happened outside the show. Um, and so it, it, I don't worry. I don't worry that I'm going to lose that sense of fulfillment because I can get it without making a television show. Uh, I worry about did did people learn something and are they inspired? And now I've somewhat probably wrongfully convinced myself that I have an obligation to educate and communicate and inspire and motivate and hold accountable and have people see the good, bad, and the ugly and to be able to juxtapose for themselves what right and wrong look like. Because too much in our society today, I don't think in, in, in television, I don't really ever see any television show, and maybe you can educate me on one that exists, where in the same series, you get to see the good, the bad, the evil, the fantastic. I don't, I don't ever think you get to right. see that. Well, spectrum. I mean, Game of Thrones or something like that. But scripted. Yeah, scripted. Right? And then unscripted. No, you're right. And unscripted, you rarely get to see it. The I, spectrum. And, no, um, but... And inspired and outraged within two episodes. It's a fair and good answer, but I guess the question I'm 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 asking, and I I I understand that it's a difficult thing to to sort of talk about, except that you you engage in this with the people that you talk to on the show. So that's why I think it's all fair. Is that you will look at someone like um, at the meat company, um, you'll look at that woman who was helping them, and and you can't believe that Donna's kind of allowed herself to put all this stuff ahead of her own well-being and um and so i think it's a fair question to say to you have you fi- are, are you at least in a process of trying to figure out how to like for myself yeah have like kids a wife life you know i'm in a relationship today it's uh she's she, uh, she's very supportive uh she hates the fact that i have a television show hates it i mean to the core uh she will tell me uh, uh, that it's the most generous, selfish thing that one person can do. I give of myself and I keep for, from myself and I keep from her. You're giving to everybody except us. Right. That's what I'm it's asking like, you. Who are you, Santa are Claus? You, are you figuring out how to give to yourself? Are you, are you engaged in figuring out how to give to yourself? Uh, right now, I'm not. I need to be, but right now, I'm not. And, and uh, it's not. It, for me, I would say to you candidly that it's not in the cards today. <laughs> It's not something that I feel like I have the time to do. And where I do give to myself is these relationships that I form with people on the show that are meaningful. Sure. It's a new friend. Right. It's a new relationship. I was at dinner last night with the gentleman who is on tonight's, uh, the Courage Be the Tonight Show. And he sat, we were sitting at the bar and he said to me, do you... He said, I have to just tell you this. I'm like, I love our relationship. We met like two or three months ago. That's what he says to me. And he said, do you do this with everybody? And I said, do I do what with everybody? Do you share this much of yourself? And do I get like, like, is this relationship almost seems surreal to me? You know, he said, you know, my father died when I was eight years old. I don't have a brother. He's like, this relationship came out of nowhere. I applied to the show. I thought you were going to like jack me up because my place was a mess. Right. But now I have a friendship and a relationship. That's a very big responsibility. It, it is. But let me ask you this. Are and you, I said to him, yes, because I meant it. Are you, uh, are you able at least to um, accept kindness and friendship in return? No. 
I don't like gifts either. Like if, if we were best buddies and I gave you a Christmas gift and you gave me another one, I'd be like, you know what? I don't need this. Yeah. I have trouble taking it back. Um, that's what I'm asking. You, you have a hard time in a mutual, yeah. in a mutuality. Struggle with it. I, Is I, it that the vulnerability scares you? No, because I can be vulnerable. Uh, uh, well, but counting on somebody else is a different kind of vulnerability, right? Believing that someone's going to be there for you. Because you're there for, you know, you watch the show and you come in and you take care of these people. Yeah. And do you ever allow that for yourself? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Because I usually think I could take care of myself. I'm just fine. And, and I don't need the help. And I don't need some, I need people to be focused on themselves and get themselves right and not worry about me. And it's probably, it's, uh, it, it, it could be perceived as being a martyr could be perceived that way. I don't really think about it that way, but somebody could accuse me of that. It's really that I, I, um, people want to do nice things for me. I get very uncomfortable. They want to, you know, have me over for dinner or, or buy me something, something silly. It doesn't have to be expensive. It could be something, but if, if I really, this is a good example. You have these, uh, yeah, I gave this, these I nice nutmegs. Sure. Very uncomfortable. I'm kidding. Uh, if, if you knew that I like these nuts, okay. These, yeah. these fruit mix, nut and fruit mix. And it was like my favorite thing. And you, and it was my birthday. And you thought, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to get them. And you went out and you bought me something very elaborate and very expensive. I would be wildly uncomfortable. But if you bought me my favorite snack, which you, costs $1.89. That would mean a lot to you. It would mean more to me. Right, because it would seem pure. It would seem... It would seem like you weren't trying to impress me, right? You wouldn't be no, you wouldn't ascribe any sort of negative motive to it, right? I wouldn't think to myself like, "Well, now what do I have to do?" Right? It's almost like I I want to do things for people, but I don't ever want to be obligated. Yeah, sure. Uh, That's no, a big thing. I understand that, but I I um, which is why my deals on the show are not as toxic as they could be. I would be, I I. In my real life, I'm just as nice as I am when my deals in the show, and I have had plenty of people. Kevin O'Leary, who who uh, right. we did some Shark Tank, um, some uh, CNBC stuff together. You know, he's he's a different kind of guy. I don't know if you've ever had him on your show, but he's a different kind of guy. And he said to me, "You know, you you you're out just making deals, and your deals are fantastic, and everybody's getting a good deal except you." And I said, "Well, how do you know if I'm not getting a good deal?" Well, it looks I would have done a much different deal. I said, "Well, that's you." Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in, uh, Kevin, I haven't had him on my show. I, my, I, I, uh, I like him on the show, but I'm not actually, you know, the thing that you're doing is really, and, and this thing that I think I picked up on, which is, um, you know, your, your need to give, because I think about, I'm, I am a dad and I've watched my kids and I can, I've watched the way that, uh, I've watched the way that things that happen when you're very young can have a lingering effect. And for you, how do you think you turn this? You know, I do think, uh, it's, it's kind of clear. And I think it's probably clear to you that you need to like, uh, allow yourself to get some inner joy and sure, yeah. satisfaction, you know, and right. trust and all That's that stuff. Right. But how do you think you turn this stuff that happened to you into a positive? Was there a moment when you realized, okay, um, I'm, I've had to, I've had to bear this. I, there was a very clear moment for me um, and it, and I have them often and it circles around the fact that I, I believe that I have a talent that is different than anybody else. I believe I have the ability to, to, um, build a rapport with people at whatever level in the organization it may be. 
I believe that I'm able to uh, put myself down into the trenches and in really try to think like someone else thinks and then in in a nanosecond be able to be super sophisticated about something and solve it or be you know with numbers and so it's almost like um I um uh, if I had to describe myself if I was going to die tomorrow and they said we want you to pick one animal that you had to describe yourself as it wouldn't be a lion or a bear or some big ferocious animal it would be a chameleon and that I can adjust to any situation in any moment at any time with anybody within a within a nanosecond and it 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 allows me to basically move through life and deal with different personalities and if you have over, uh, investment in over 100 businesses and they everybody's different and so if you're not able to do that you you so that once i realized that i had that skill uh and once i realized that that was really like a gift from god for me it was like a it was like a something that i don't think you could learn in a textbook i don't think you could teach somebody that um i then started to get a little bit of moxie that if i could just not let it become arrogance but let it become confidence and let it become bold and not become brass and it, so i had to kind of really polish when, it when along the way because a lot of people who listen are, are people who you know I, um i often sit here with with artists and talk about the fact that um delusion and self-confidence are often it's very until the results come in it's very hard to tell which is which mm -hmm. um and you know very often on your show uh you'll interact with somebody and the, it's clear the first thing you're trying to figure out is this person telling me is this right or is he crazy um, and you do that analysis very quickly, right? <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> Quicker than you even see it on the show. I mean, it's like the first 20 minutes, like, okay. Right. You can tell, you, you figure out, okay, like this guy is, is just absolutely never going to be, uh, doesn't understand how business works. Mm -hmm. Um, but w when you were a kid, do you, two things, did you, um, how did you realize they were wrong about you? that they weren't right. Because many people take the judgment from outside. I wasn't sure they were wrong. So how did you figure it out? I'm not sure they're even wrong today. I'm not sure that the fact that I wasn't the uh, fat, unathletic, unpopular kid, I'm not sure that, you know, I had an eating disorder. I don't know if I, I didn't even tell you that. I've read that. I suffered from a terrible eating disorder. Um, and I, I don't I don't have the same problem today, but I still suffer from kind of an eating anxiety. I think about it all the time. People laugh because I'm invested in all these sweet things and I eat a lot of sugar. But but uh, but I'm not sure that what they were saying about me when I was a kid is necessarily wrong. What I stopped worrying about is whether they were right or wrong. And I stopped really focusing more on, OK, let's assume that that's true. Let's assume that I am the fat, unpopular kind of unathletic kid. I can beat you another way. That's what I'm asking though. So you had, in other words, you didn't allow their judgment to become a blanket judge. A lot of people allow that judgment to, they become depressed. Like, so you had, you, it manifested an anxiety for you and all this stuff, but yeah. how did it, how did it, I guess you're 11, you're building this business. Mm -hmm. So did your parents help you figure no, it out? No, they didn't. My, you know, my parents were a lot older than me. I mean, you're me. an only kid. Like what, what, did you read stuff? Like no, what? No, I don't even like to read much. I, I, um, I would say I figured it out through trial and error. You know, I, I ran for office three times in college. I lost. I ran for office when I got out of college. I lost. Uh, I, I, but I, at some point, and I'm trying to think back when it was, at some point, I realized that I was in control of my destiny. Um, and 
Uh, this is a very interesting example, but in 2007, 2008, I was nominated uh, for Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. And uh, I was almost laughed to myself. I was like, all right, this is nice. I'm not going to win. This is not a big deal. My parents said they wanted to come up to Chicago for the event. Don't bother coming. It's, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, you know, fast forward, you know, 30 minutes into the program and it's, you know, the chairman of Abbott Laboratories and the CEO of Potbelly. And I'm thinking, oh man, it's like, you know, this was nice to be here. It was a great meal. Thanks everybody watching these videos. And uh, about an hour into it, my mother, you know, who said I was 35 at the time, my mother, you know, like pulled on my pants and told me to pay attention or something. Huh. And uh, she said, hey, your video's coming on. And so she watched and you know, I humored her. Oh, this is great. She's like, you're going to win. And I was like, come on. You know, I, I appreciate it, mom. I love you. And so uh, I ended up winning. And I never, I'll never forget this. I went up on stage. I collected the award. I said a few things. I was very composed. I got off the stage. I went off the stage to the right and I went into this very dark, long hallway. It was like a this tunnel that they built to go out to the main lobby. And I sat down on the floor and I broke down absolutely crying. And it was like the most surreal thing because I said to myself, holy cow, this is like, maybe everybody was wrong. Like maybe somebody actually said, hey, you know what you're doing. And in that moment, I said to myself, okay, these people seem pretty smart to me, right? These are accountants and lawyers and this is, you know, this is a big deal. Uh, and in that moment, it was a bit of a tipping point for me where I was for the first time ever, ever in my entire life, recognized by somebody for something. I mean, it wasn't even like I was getting a most effort on the soccer team. Yeah. I had never gotten anything. And so it was a cataclysmic jump for me. Uh, and I didn't feel deserving before. And I didn't even feel deserving after. But I felt like somebody else thought I deserved it. And so it allowed me, it really gave me uh, a little bit of fuel and a little bit of gas to take my, to take my, my, uh, facade off and let my real persona show and be comfortable that however people were going to judge me, it didn't matter. Whatever I said, it didn't matter. I needed to be respectful. I needed to be honorable. I needed to be, you know, gracious. As long as I did those things, if I was fat, it didn't matter. If I was unathletic, it didn't matter because for the first time somebody said to me, Hey, there's something you're really good at. Go with it. It was like a sign for me. And you were 35. I was 30. Yeah, I'm 40 today. Right. I'm saying that was only was five, five years, years ago. Years ago. And so uh, I, the, the last, uh, the last a paragraph of the Inc. article was kind of interesting that he wrote this. He said he's, he's got the maturity of like a 60 year old business maturity and he's got the professional, I mean, he's got the personal maturity of like a 20 year old. And it was, I wasn't like, I didn't feel insulted. By no, it wasn't. And I can understand that it wasn't an insult. Like the, it's the about, dichotomy of, of, of maturity was. Because was, it's like, how do you synthesize, how do you sort of synthesize these different things? Like the, even now when you say, or that story is amazing that, you know, then this show is called the moment and it's all about the thing I'm really interested in is, uh, you know, people accomplish remarkable things, process these huge moments. And obviously that was one where it, it actually was cathartic for you. Very. Um, but even when I hear you say, um, maybe their judgment was right. You know, uh, when I was a kid, 
um, it sort of is a way to keep whatever the pain was still at at bay. And I, I, I or, or it can the, be. Or keep the flame lit? Well, maybe, sure. Or, or one side or the other of that, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to if you were able to say um, they were mean and they were they were but they were wrong. Were they? Who am I to say? I am pretty unathletic. I was fat. I didn't have a lot of right. Friends, so but to write you all, you know, you know, uh, because it obviously ties into what you go and find in these companies. Yeah, but I can see, I can find it because I can see it because I know what it looks well, like. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. Did did I, It was the first question I'd written down to ask, but we've gone off on these things, which is, um, do you think that being an outsider for so long, losing elections, and then as a kid being an outsider, enabled you to look at group dynamics and pick them apart because you had this, like, desire to, or you were trying to, some part of you was trying to figure out, how do I fit into this? Or No, it... Uh, being an outsider and in, in losing elections and, and not having any friends and all those things, it gave me an innate ability to see through people and to see what really exists and to read them and to look into their eyeballs. And I, I feel very blessed that I have that skill, but I can look people in the eyeball and I can talk to them and I can truly understand exactly if they're shooting me straight or not, if they're being genuine or not. And when they're not genuine with me, when they're not sincere, a, a, a bit of a rage uh, in a very calculated way um, looks to really either fix it and try to dissect it and get into it and rip it apart and break them down and then build them back up or, or run over them. And you'll feel justified in running, oh, like when when that episode of the candy store. Did you see any of season one? A little bit of it, but I see two every episode. Flower shop where I spent a hundred and something thousand dollars, and the guy in the end says, "I'm not doing the yeah, deal." Oh, well, that's mad, maddening. Uh, uh, I mean, I thought to myself that you oh, no, the candy me. store one, no, not the candy store, the uh, the toy company one drove me. So if people listen, there are a couple of episodes of this show that you have to see. Definitely watch this new season. But when I watched. Okay, there are a few things. I'm so glad that you just brought up that kind of thing <laughs> because um, this company is named after like a... What, what's the name? Skullduggery. Skullduggery. Um, so twice I was sent to the internet to try to look up what happened to these people because I, I've never... I wanted to find them on Twitter and be able to say like, um, I hope you guys saw... Do those people ever contact you afterwards and they, say, they I was do. wrong, or you made me, or do they not see themselves, don't think, you painted me the wrong way? There, there's a combination of two, and we're going to do a follow-up episode uh, this, this, uh, this fall. Uh, there are, on which episode? On Skullduggery? On all of, everything oh, that we've good. done so far, we're going to kind of tell you what's happened. Uh, in the case of Skullduggery, I got hate mail from the mother, the sister, the brother, the father, you you made us look. I said, "Hey, I didn't make you do anything. I didn't make you go to a meeting and totally." Ass I mean, you walked them didn't... into it. Now, did you? Okay, did you know that it could be good? I guess this is just you know. Did you know? Oh, this could be good television. Watching them blow the NASCAR meeting, uh, or did you think I thought, I'm going to be able to turn them around by going to this? NASCAR I thought meeting? they were going to. Here's what I thought. I thought that they potentially could be wonky in their sales process and a little clumsy, and I'd have to coach them up a little bit, and you know, it would be like a sales lesson. That's when we went to originally. Oh, you thought they wouldn't know how to charm the NASCAR guys, so you no, would be I mean, able to I use thought, it as. I a, thought they would be. I I thought they would be charming enough 
to be palatable, but bad enough in their sales process to, to get coached. And then we'd have this big success story where I taught them how to sell. They got the account, right? I mean, that's honestly how I thought it was going to be. And, and so when I actually sat, sat there and the guy from NASCAR was in front of me and I looked to my left and I watched him, I looked at the guy from NASCAR and I literally thought, I don't even know what, I don't even know what to say. What are these, I mean, these people on that show had a warehouse full of unsold goods. I know. They were the least creative people. They didn't have a practice by, uh, to figure out how to create, how to ideate, <laughs> any of that stuff. They were uh, frauds. They were frauds. Now, my question is, when those people reach out to you, what, what do they think they're getting? What are they hoping they're going to get? It's funny because in that particular one... When we sat down for the negotiation, I think you remember that negotiation to be, you know, the guy was like, I'd rather die than have you take my company. Well, yeah, and then walks into the dad and we all think the dad's going to be rational and he's worse. He's worse. And that's really where where it came from. But they said to me, like a lot of them do, I want you to know I've watched every show three times. I've taken notes. I know how you negotiate. I know exactly what you're going to say. I know what you're going to do. And so don't come here and think you're just going to, you know, do your normal thing. And I'd be like, all right. Okay. Well, then what do you want me to do? No, I, I, I would just say, oh, okay, okay I'm, I, I'm glad you watched every show. I, I didn't even know what to say. Like, I don't even know what to say to that. And so I said, but do you guys not want to go through the process? We definitely do. We just want you to know we know how you operate. Great. Uh, can you guys walk me through your numbers? Well, we don't know our numbers. I thought you guys told me you knew how I operated. Like, didn't you know that was going to be oh. my first question? And so... I never would have expected, in fact, before we went there, I had said to the production team, this is going to be like the boring episode. This is going to be the one where like, you know, we make some toys. Really? I honest to God thought this is going to be, we're going to make some toys and, and uh, we're going to have some fun. And I mean, it turned out to be wild. Well, yeah. And uh, great. I just have a few things and I'll, I'll um, let you get out of here. Um, how can we, uh, do you think, train ourselves to, you know, look at situations the way that you do to, how do you think the, the, that people, you know, so much of what we see on, on your show is that people lie to themselves because they can't face, um, how bad things have gotten or how perilous the road ahead is. Um, and then you come in and, and very quickly are able to say, okay, let me show you guys the danger that you're heading towards and let me show you how bad it is. Mm-hmm. And how, how, how can we learn to be that rigorous in our evaluation of, of how we do what we do? So the first thing is you have to show them and not tell them. You can't just tell people that they're stupid. You can show them they're not doing the right thing. Secondly, you have to empathize with them. And you have to really think initially what I always try to do is build a rapport with them and build a level of trust where they feel comfortable kind of becoming vulnerable and telling me what they're they're good and they're not good at. And the only way you can do that is to tell somebody what you're not good at first. Right. You know, we may not see all of that in the show, but sometimes, because it's 44 minutes, but just like in my relationship with you, you and I now have a rapport because I'm comfortable saying to you, yeah, I, I was kind of messed up, right? And so I'm not trying to tell you that I'm, I'm better than anybody else. And so once people can see, because they, when I get there, they're like, oh my God, this is a TV show. I've seen this guy. He's really smart. And they're intimidated. You got to just, you got to just break all that off and just say, look, I'm the same as you. In fact, I'm probably worse than you. I've made a lot of mistakes. So then you have to show them. I think what people don't want, at least initially, is to be told 
how dumb they were, how much jeopardy they put their family in. But how can they learn, how can people learn without, so most people don't have you coming into their lives. Like, how can somebody listening to this who's wondering why he or she hasn't gotten ahead, who's been trying and, you know, they know they're smart or they know, how can they sort of start to look honestly at, at really where they are? Like, what do you do to look into your own practices to know where your blind spots are? Because what you're exposing a lot of the time for people are their blind spots. Well, isn't the first, for me, the first part is recognizing them and acknowledging the blind spots. And I don't know that everybody's willing to do that. I don't know that everybody's willing to say, I am really not good at writing. Right. Or I am not a great friend because I don't call people back on time. Or I'm a terrible son because I don't call my mother every day. It's almost like for me, I, and I'm, this is odd to tell you this, but I make a list of things that I'm not good at. This is exactly what people want to know. You a do lot. that for yourself. I do it because it's like self-punishment. Like I need to know what I'm not good at and you have to be honest. I don't show the list to anybody. No. I keep it to myself and I come to grips with it. And some, some of the things I just say, that's it. That's me. I don't know what to but do. But you do apply as, you're saying you apply as rigorous a, a, a judgment on yourself as, as you're asking people to do um, on their selves. Worse. For the, for the, worse. Worse. Yeah. I hold myself to a higher standard and it's paralyzing. But so my advice to people would be to get a sheet of paper out and write down the things that you think you're not good at. Not just in business. Don't tell me that you're not good at math or you're not good at singing. You know, most people can't sing. Tell me the things that fundamentally you see as voids in your character, in voids in your personality, voids in your social skills, and come to grips with those. That's, that, to me, is the first part. And then on that same sheet of paper, understand what it is that you're really good at. And, and, and find out if you believe that you're able to hone in on the things that you're good at and at least diffuse the things that you're not good at. Because I don't know that I could learn to be, uh, let's say if I picked an example, like I feel like I'm not the greatest of friends, okay? Uh, until I make a cataclysmic change in my life, all I could do is make minimal efforts. Try to, right? Make efforts to be a better friend. But that's just part of my character. I'm, I'm so busy and I'm not as involved in it. But I know I'm a great coworker. Sure. And so I try to really not let the friend thing get out of control and just throw it away and be like, I'm a bad friend, so it's just okay, I'm gonna let it go. I work on it, but not 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 as much as yeah, I Yeah, because you wonder if you haven't told yourself why you need yeah, to. But I really, really know what I'm good at and I work I work extra hard on that to kind of create that imbalance. Create that separation. Yeah, it's interesting though, and we can finish on this that you, you the friend thing, you're almost um I just wonder if if uh if it is clear to you that it's what that costs you. In terms of like, you're almost saying it as though you feel like you're doing a bad thing to them, but, you know. Well, it, it's actually more of a bad thing to me. It right. costs me the relationship. It costs me the satisfaction. It costs me, it costs me more than it costs them. But I think in this moment, I'm making a conscious decision to choose. I'm, I'm choosing it. Right? Sa- yeah, it's choosing safer. It. It's safer, it's sure, safer. I want, you know, I, some of these businesses, and we'll kind of finish with this, yeah. some of these businesses that, that you go into um, are not any different than the relationships that you, you meet people like you and I met today. And so I, I would tell you that for your own self, do you really know what you're not good at? Do I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you, can you, are you comfortable with that in your own skin and can you talk about it? Yeah, I do. I mean, sure. You do I already. do. I talk about it. Right. And so, and do you know what you're really good at? 
I work, well, here's what I'd say. I work on this all the time. I journal every day. I, I do, I meditate every day. I, I, however many years ago, when I became a dad, I realized, okay, I better now start. If I want to, I, if I want to be the kind of father I want to be, husband I want to be, I had better try and find my blind spots and address them. Nobody can get all the way there, right. but yes, I've, um, I've worked in, I mean, I do this show and have these conversations, uh, because, um, I decided a long time ago to chase my curiosity and fascination and obsessions. And that if I was actively engaged in that, it would just redound an enormous benefit in terms of fixing whatever those things were. That's right. Um, and so that's why I, I mean, it doesn't, the show's not about me, people, but you know, I didn't become a screenwriter until I was 30. I had a whole nother life as an executive. Why did you do it? Um, Why'd you become a screenwriter? I, my son was nine months old. I was in a, uh, I was an A&R person in the record business. And the thing you were talking about, about propping these people up, I would sign somebody to a record deal. I would make all sorts of promises that I meant, that I really wanted to keep. When I couldn't force all those other people to keep the promise, I would be a liar. I started hating myself for it. I would recognize this person's an incredible talent. They put their faith and trust in me. I've now propped them up only to return them worse because now they're also a failure on a grand scale. I was miserable and I realized I really wanted to be the artist. I needed to be doing the thing myself. And I, I had the very clear thought that uh, I wanted to be able to tell my kids um, to chase whatever their dream was. And people always leave out the second part, which is that you have to work your very hardest to chase your dream. But I might think, and so I realized I wasn't chasing it. This is all the work. So I realized I wasn't chasing my dream. My wife had been telling me for years. And in a second, I went, whatever, I have to find a way to break through this writer's block that's been killing me till, from zero to 30 and change my life so that when I walk through the door and my kids look at me, I can say to them, I am chasing the thing that I want to do. I'm becoming it. Um, and that if I, you know, if I did that, I'd have a chance not to screw their lives up. And otherwise, you know, I think people who are blocked in any way become toxic to themselves and the people around them. So what became paramount to me was to do the work. And then when I was doing the work and thriving and, you know, making all these movies and television shows, then I wanted to try to help other people to break through those things for themselves, which is why I then was like, well, one way to do that is to engage in conversations with people who have done it mm -hmm. and to try to, to try to look at them and, and learn for myself and for the other people. Well, how did they, how did they go from this place of friendless, overweight, anxiety ridden, um, by objective standards, a failure to having their own television show that's incredibly compelling, that's a success, and that's entire function is to rescue people. And, and you know, that uh, I know that I go back and I think about these conversations and it always makes me think of something in my life or something I can tell one of my kids or something that I can tweet out to the people following me and I gain from it. So, yeah, I'm engaged in it all the time. So I'll leave you this. I know we got to run. Uh, you know, I was born in, uh, in Beirut, Lebanon. I lived in an orphanage adopted by an American family. Uh, grew up in Miami, Florida. Went to college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Odd place to go. Went back to Miami. Went back to Chicago. Back and forth here and there. Only child. My mother passed away. My father's alive. No siblings. Not much relationships with cousins or anything like that. I have almost 7,000 employees. I would do anything for them. They're kind of like my kids. And I wake up every day and I do ask myself, and this is what people should ask themselves, is what is my purpose? And so my purpose really going forward, at least in the short term, is to give people 
some level of hope and some level of um, belief that the fat kid can do it, that you it isn't about just making money. It is life is about integrity. It is about shaking somebody's hand and having them honor it. It is about working hard. It isn't about entitlement. It is about being a good citizen. It is about being a good neighbor and a good employer, employee. And the American dream has gotten wildly screwed up, in my opinion. It isn't about having a Lamborghini and a big house. I don't like these shows that talk about how awesome things are if you have six houses. The American dream is back to that romanticized 1950s where it's a small house with a white picket fence where mom and dad are there and you have a dog and the bills are paid on time and you're you know, 77 payments away from paying your mortgage off and you don't have a lot of credit card debt and you have Sunday dinner and you put your kids through school. Why, why does it have to be any more complicated than that? Why? Because um, we all self-sabotage sometimes, and I love the pursuit you're on, which is to help people recognize it and and fix it. You can find Marcus's show is on every Tuesday, Tuesday night, Tuesday night, ten o'clock, ten o'clock Eastern, CNBC. on CNBC. You can find him on Twitter at at Marcus Lemonis, Lemon with an is dot com. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Kopman. Marcus, if I can do one Marcus Lemonis to you, I would just say, you know, it'd be great if you would accept, like, if you told yourself once a month. I'm going to allow a friend of mine to do something nice for me, and I'm not going to feel the need to immediately do something nicer back. Well, you did it for me today. Great. So we're even. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.